A significant body of research shows that the subtle gender bias that persists in organisations today delivers conflicting expectations for women and additional hurdles for their leadership, at the heart of which is the double bind, that is, needing to be warm and nice, what society traditionally expects of women, as well as competent and tough, what society traditionally expects of men and leaders. So today we're exploring these unconscious biases and what we can do with them and what we can do about them. Grit in the Oyster with me, Penny DeVolk. A conversation about how we navigate our careers, our organisations, our lives as women leaders, exploring its challenges, learning from others, sharing best practice. An opportunity to step out of the fray for a bit, to tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. Hello from Black's Club, Soho, London. I'm delighted to be joined today by Angela Peacock. Angela is chair of the People Development Group of Companies that offers key interventions in the areas of diversity and inclusion. A seasoned high-impact executive, educator, facilitator and speaker, Angie delivers a very fresh and compelling and challenging perspective on what organisations and individuals can do to address the issue of diversity and inclusion at a very personal level. Welcome Angie, great to have you along. Lovely to be here Penny, lovely to be here. Angie, start by telling us a bit about your story and a bit about PDT. Sure, well interesting actually, PDT um, started around about 20 years ago uh, and we always say by two girlies in the back of the garage with half a dog and a bit of a secretary. Um, And our intention at the time was to deliver really high-end leadership training um, but to very few people we were always going to be a boutique organization and as with all good things we soon expanded we started working in the field of culture change we started working in the field of strategy and strategic development and when we kind of hit the 10-year mark we were working with some of the biggest names in the city of London Um, we did some work in Europe not not huge amounts Came the crash of 2008, and uh, we very nearly crashed with it. Um, But we were at the time um, beginning to to do two things. We were beginning to run programmes on the topic of unconscious bias, which Mm -hmm. at the time was starting to be the flavour of the month, and interestingly still is. But we were also moving into the field of live virtual classroom learning. And with those two things in combination, it meant that we could scale virtualize and run global programs on the flick of a switch mm. and with that we are we sort of shot off and we are where we are now which is a global organization working with some of the biggest names um, mm. around the globe from microsoft to cisco from ubs to standard chartered bank um, and we now are very strategic about looking at their approaches to inclusion um, that still does include unconscious bias but mm. not as the mainstay of what we do mm. So you've seen a a real evolution. What do you see as the critical issues organisations are confronting today in the diversity and inclusion arena? And how has that evolved in the last decade? Well, I think the critical issue they're facing is that uh, is actually, to a large extent, 
one of their own design and one of the design of the people around them. So I think what we're seeing is this melding together of diversity and inclusion. Mm. Um, I call it diverse occlusion. Um, it sort of comes out of our mouth all at a trot yes. when actually we are talking about two very different things. Mm. And the work that we're doing with a lot of organisations now is to enable them to put clear blue water between the two. Now, there are a multitude of reasons we do that. Mm. Um, on the diversity front, we know that a large percentage of what we would call the privileged humans inside these organisations, mm. and that differs depending on where you are. We're sitting in London. It's no secret that the privileged humans in most of the organisations around us are men. They're generally straight and they're white. Mm. Um, but the privileged humans inside these organisations are turning off of the diversity agenda. Yes. Now, they're not stupid enough to say that out loud. Mm. Um, it's just gone underground. Absolutely. So what it does, it goes underground, it goes toxic, it goes quite nasty. And we have found that actually by separating the diversity conversation from the inclusion conversation, we get them back again because they are very happy to have the conversation about inclusion as a preamble to then understanding where the conversation about diversity comes in. If we lead with, you need to go out and hire yourself five more women and the world will be a better place, mm. then we fail every single mm. time. We'll just develop yeah. resistance. Completely. Yeah. And defensiveness. Yeah. 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 So overall, I would say, especially the last 18 months, it's being facing the facts that we are turning off those privileged groups wherever we are in the world, mm. not just London. Um, and that one of the major ways to flush that out is to call it out, number one. So we don't hide it. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. How do you call it out? Straight, like I really did to you. Um, we talk about the fact that a very considerable percentage of the privileged group in an organisation will believe two things. The first thing that we have discovered through our research, they believe, is that the diversity agenda and argument has absolutely no business results correlation whatsoever. So they still believe that. So they still believe that. In spite that. of the it, data. In spite of the data. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you think about it, and one of the, the, the data numbers that I sort of roll out quite constantly is it was 2004 when Catalyst first released the data yeah. that sort of proved that if you have more women in the senior echelons, you're going to get better business results. If having the data was going to make any difference, yes, we wouldn't be sitting here in 2019. Yeah. And it's not actually an intellectual exercise. It's an emotional one. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So they're not listening to the data. And I think the other thing is they're not listening to... And uh, when, I, when I say this, I say it advisedly because we have been paid to work with heads of DNI to craft beautiful yeah. statements of intent. They're not listening to those either. Mm. So being really granular with them. And that's the work that we do as well. How the hell does this stuff make a difference to your business at the end of the day? That work. Now that's where we're seeing the change. Mm. So what's your particular point of view on inclusion and unconscious bias and how it plays out in individuals as well as in organisations. What are you seeing? Well, we're seeing it continue to play out. And I think it's no secret that most of the research that has gone on around unconscious bias has basically highlighted the fact that for all the training on, around bias, it's made no difference mm -hmm. at all. In fact, in some instances, the argument is it's escalating. Yep. I think we have to put it in context and we have to put it in context of the world we are living in, the political situations that we're in, and that's both sides of the pond. If you think about what's happening in the US, you think about what's happening in Brazil, mm. it is no uh, surprise that we are seeing bias growing and not going back. Um, I was at Harvard um, with Dr. Banache 
um, a few weeks back. And that's quite interesting research to share as well, because what they, what Harvard have done through their IAT tests is they have accurately been able to denote where we are going in terms of bias in different areas and they've been able to look back over five years Mm. and look at whether bias has reduced or whether it's grown and they've also been able to predict pretty accurately where it's going in the next five years and is this by geography this is by geography so Mm. i can only give you the the u.s stats but the u.s stats are frightening and um what they've basically discovered is that lgbtq Mm. um has improved by 37 percent over the last five years so bias both unconscious and conscious against LGBTQ individuals has improved by 37.5%. Fantastic news. Right. It is predicted to continue to improve. Also fantastic news. However, when we look at the other groups, so we look at race bias, it has only improved in the US by 12%. It is predicted to completely fall off a cliff in the next five years, so it's not getting any better. Mm. And when we look at gender bias, that's improved by 24%. Yay, that's going to flatline. So we have got a big, big, big problem on our hands because the political world isn't turning for this and our organisations operate within that political world. But I have seen a little bit of a shining light on the horizon. What's the shining light? So the shining light is around procurement. Procurement is a shining light. Procurement. I didn't thought I'd ever say that out loud. No, procurement Procurement is is a shining light. light. We should worship at the feet of a lot of the um, senior heads of procurement. So the way I have seen this move in the last 18 months is really quite interesting. So when you think about it, and this is another argument that we can make to the privileged group that really don't get that this stuff is about them. And when we look at things like RFPs and we look at organisations trading with other organisations, where we know we used to be asked to declare our diversity numbers. Yeah. yeah? Um, But we also knew that, frankly, for a lot of organisations, it didn't make any difference at all what your diversity numbers were. If you were offering best value solution or best value products, you were going to get that contract. What we're seeing now is a rise of the chief procurement officers Mm. onto the board. So we are seeing them with far more power than they ever had before. Because of that, we're also noticing that they have a much stronger lever to encourage buying decisions to absolutely be serious about diversity. And it's not just your numbers. It's the plans that you've got for improving that. It's the plans as well that you have for improving overall inclusion ratios. Mm lots of dimensions of that so procurement has become a huge influencer oh yes yes absolutely cutting through some of the defensiveness completely completely so that that research is really interesting isn't it because yes when we look at as you say anything from brazil to brexit to you know whatever's happening in u.s politics that sort of geopolitical tribalism yes are you seeing as playing out in organizations when people feel threatened uh, especially the privileged, yes. uh, feel threatened that yeah. actually they will become defensive Completely. and tribal yeah. and locked down yeah. as opposed to open. Absolutely. And I mean, if I go back to your original question, how are we seeing things like bias play out? I can give you a, an, an, an absolute that we saw very recently in the last 10 months in the US where we had 
um, two very, very competent Mexican um, managers reporting in to a senior manager who not only was a Trump supporter but made it very clear that he thought the wall should go up mm. and for the reasons why he thought the wall should go up. Now, again, his argument when we had a quiet word was that that was his... He, he wanted to own his political opinion. That was his opinion and he was sticking to it. And he felt it. it was completely legitimate. Absolutely. And it didn't make any difference to the people he was working with. It wasn't going to affect his judgment whatsoever. And we know that's not true. Yeah. We know you can't be one human at home and be a different yeah. human. You and bring a different lens it doesn't work to like work. That. Yeah. Mm. You can pretend all you like, but it will bleed out of your eyes, your 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 that your thought processes, the people that you choose to promote, the people mm. you don't, and even the way that your body responds to another human being. Yeah. If you don't like someone, they'll shows. know. Oh, yeah. for goodness sake! Yeah. yeah, it's funny actually. On our on our training courses, I'm very often asked, "Are you asking me to work with people I don't like?" And and my catchphrase with that is, "Yeah, no." I'm asking you to learn to like more people. That's what I'm asking yeah. you to do. Yeah. yeah. Kind, of, kind of come with us and live in this multicultural world. And uh, yeah, it might be more helpful. So are you saying that, you know, the, the hard wiring that we thought we could sort of remould 10, 20 years ago is actually getting harder wired and not more plastic as we thought if people got exposed to difference, if they got exposed if they threw a light onto our own unconscious biases that people would be able to respond. What's happening? It's con- it really is so multifaceted and contextual. Mm. I think, and I will put our hands up to this, we were quite naive in the beginning to think that if we shine a light on it, suddenly it will mm. shrivel up and disappear. However, I when we look at and it is the classic way of culture change, it applies as much to this as it does to anything else, that actually we need to change behaviour and belief, and we need to do it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, changing behaviour goes back to the old what gets measured gets done. Mm. And my feeling is that if we measure on an ongoing basis the amount of activity and action that follows an intervention about bias we can pretty well see who's buying into it and who's looking to reduce it and who isn't right and in certainly since we've been doing that work around measurement and it's it's a lot more complex than i'm making it sound really but since we've been doing that work around measurement that is absolutely what we've seen we have seen inclusion indicators in organizations go up yeah where we see a higher uptake around activity and action following an intervention does that does that make sense yeah. sounds like something yeah. coming from the doctors yeah <laughs> but um but but that is what we've seen so we know and we know higher rates of inclusion give you higher rates of diversity yeah so i actually see that but that is about following up with activities and actions and the other thing we've learned is hold people's hands don't mm-hmm. expect them to go on a however entertaining and wonderful mm-hmm. and earth-shattering. Don't expect them to go on a two-hour intervention and leave knowing what yeah. to do. Yeah. Because um, they just won't. So Because yeah. um, hardwiring is hardwiring. Hardwiring yeah. is hardwiring. So yeah. we put a system of reminders. We put a system of just-in-time mm-hmm. um, little nudges on. And we also put a system of accountability, storytelling, conversations yeah. to have with teams. But we do that electronically so, so that they we know. start rewiring. Absolutely. some of their Absolutely. defaults yeah because mm. yeah. they're not going to do it on their own yeah so what does best in class unconscious bias training then look like well, I guess there's a lot of it out there yes i guess i'm going to say it looks like ours aren't I, <laughs> um 
for me, we've learnt a lot in doing this over the last 10 years. And it absolutely looks like, well, I'll give you some, some, some absolutes. It has to sit under the inclusion agenda. Yeah. If it sits out there on its own, like a little, I'll tick mm, the box. It doesn't belong anywhere. It's, it, yeah. The other thing is, I think we should all stop doing it as a result of Me Too, because that seems to be, the two seem to be intrinsically connected mm. since Me Too. That's not helpful either. So it needs to sit under inclusion. It absolutely needs to be championed from the top. I'm afraid yeah. it is the old, old story. But it needs to be championed from the top in a way that they absolutely do buy into it and they're not just reading a script that a D&I head have yes. given them to, to churn out. And their behaviour yes. amplifies that. absolutely. Mm. We need to see it. The other thing is we need to see it filter through all of the policies. So in terms of HR policies, any recruitment policies, um, any of the talent policies, performance management, the whole kit and caboodle, mm. we need to see that through. And in our experience, interestingly, having HR teams really immersed in it, able to articulate it, is really, really important. The final thing really is around the embedding. So one and done doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but actually neither does high touch lots of, of further trainings. What they don't need is that. What they do need are nudges, things to do. Mm -hmm. Now go away and make this happen. And I guess I would say this, the actual intervention needs to haunt their dreams. Um, yeah. And I think all of that together, you're looking at a belief system change and a behavioral change. Yeah, yeah. Um, you referenced it before, um, Angie, and I'm just wondering, making people aware of their biases, you know, does that ultimately make them less likely to act on them? We had made big assumptions about awareness would shift behaviour. So you some see and that? some. Some and some. I mean, I, I, so, so whenever I'm giving speeches at conferences, the first thing I say when I walk on the stage is, do I have any racist, ageist, sexist, homophobes here? Mm -hmm. And it usually goes very quiet and people kind of shuffle a bit. And I kind of retort with, well, do you know what? If it's just me, we'll just talk about me for the next <laughs> three hours because, frankly, we're all riddled with bias. I am and you are. Yep. Bias is situational. I can sit here today and tell you that I do not have a race bias. Yep. Put me in an extreme situation tomorrow and, it'll and it will in. come screaming out of my body. Mm. Mm. And I do think that is true for all of us. And I think the, the it's naive to say, no, I don't. It's also naive to allow people to kind of say, oh, look at this one bias I've discovered about tattoos. Mm. Now, now I'm cured. And yeah, it's isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's mm. it's like, i tell you how I, I, I compare it, Penny, the whack-a-mole game. Do you remember whack-a-mole? Oh, As a kid used to be, not one down, right, one and comes then one up. pops up. Yeah. It's exactly the mm -hmm. same. You, it's like cleaning your kitchen. You, you've never, you, know, you do that every day, and I'm afraid, being aware of your bias, you, know, you have to be aware of it every day, yeah. and it will come get you. I can give you an example of yeah. how it got me. Really, really, right, so um, I had just given a speech to a group of execs and I got into the lift um, to, to leave the building and as I got into the lift one of them I'd say a gentleman of about 60 got in the lift with me and he was showing uh, another young lady a photograph of a baby to which my absolute response was yeah. Oh, is that your first grandchild? <laughs> yeah. To which yeah. he said, "No, it's not. That's my first child." Um, and again, you know, physician, heal thyself. And and I guess what I'm saying is, you have to be on it all the time. It doesn't go. But being on it collectively, systemically as an organisation, I do think that makes a difference. Yeah. 
And, you know, that's the challenge. We use the cognitive shortcuts to help us simplify yes. the world, Absolutely. to make sense of the world. So it's a good thing, except when the world that we've le- yes. got hardwired for is not actually yes. the world Absolutely. anymore that we need to oh, actually operate goodness. in. No, no, no. Yeah. no. So mean, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I've seen also, um, you know, anti-bias or workshops and people come out of them and they are insightful and they're excited, but in some ways can have the risk of normalising prejudice. And people think, well, they can't do anything about it mm-hmm. because it's just hardwired. And, uh, and it's like, well, oh, OK, that's just me. Yeah, I am just. And, and to, to some extent, I'm saying that we yeah. are all hardwired. But we can do something about it. And and there's something about it is within the pause. The other little trick um, that we share on our training programs is two questions. What could you know? What should you know? And if when you see a human, you ask yourself, what could I know? What should I know? And you absolutely exercise that muscle constantly Mm. a good way to do it i found is uber drivers around the world um you know i've I've heard more exciting stories exactly (laughs) that's such fun yeah 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 Other, other taxi firms are available but i've had more more of my biases smashed mm-hmm. by Talking doing the what could I know, yeah. what should I know. And those yeah. are two very different things as well. You know, what could I know about someone mm-hmm. and what did I ought to know in order to be in this world, in this situation, in this time with yeah. them? Two very different things. So, yeah, yeah. What could I know, what should I know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's quite intriguing. I, I, I actually advise people to do it for three weeks solid every time they see another yeah. human. But obviously I, I also say not if you're going on a date. It's not a good one if you're going on a date, you know, that, that, that really kind of takes the flow out. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've referenced so much of these shifts are about rewiring, um, and we know we can do that. Our brains mm-hmm. are much more plastic, mm-hmm. we know now, than they you know, yep. have ever been considered to be in the past. So it isn't just me. We can do that. What other things, what other behavioural shifts, you know, might people, you know, really take on a daily basis to go, I can actually shift some of these either prejudices or natural biases that I think serve me well, but probably are not. So a lot of it is about pause. It's hit your own pause button. Mm. Um, I do think in the world that we we live in, well, if we just look at the, 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 the typical day, we know that we are more likely to be biased when we're rushing from meeting to meeting. Mm-hmm. We know when we're stressed or de-stressed. Mm-hmm. We know that if you've got up in the morning, had a row with your partner, fallen over the cat and smashed the car, mm. you are more likely... You've got no fuse, no margin. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. there's nothing left. We also know that we have a limit to the number of good decisions we can make in a day. Mm. So again, if we're making people decisions or human being based decisions, it's a good idea to put those into the morning. The other interesting thing is there's a direct link between your ability to make a a balanced decision about someone who would normally be in your out group or not based on your caffeine levels. So caffeine level high, caffeine level low will affect it. Sugar level high, sugar level low affects it the same way. And don't even get me started on alcohol. Um, (laughs) So again, you know, looking at the lives we lead and the assumptions that we make and then the, the link, if you like, back to I see you, I put you in this box all of those things are affected by the environments we're creating. Yeah. So not to always trust your autopilot. Absolutely. Autopilot does not always no. work well. Never, or for the people around us absolutely. in our lives. And as you just said, when our load is high, yeah. we will default to autopilots. Yes. And yeah. that's often exactly when we need to pause. Totally, yeah. totally. So push and the pause button. Yeah, it's push the pause button. And I think the other thing is being... 
being logical with yourself about the fact that you probably in one day will encounter hundreds of thousands more people than your great-grandparents encountered in a year or a lifetime. And those people are going to walk differently, talk differently, smell differently, act differently, look differently and display their talent differently. Your brain is just not wired to do that. You are not as clever as you think you are. And I think that humility is also serving Mm. us well. So the more we can remind ourselves, I'm not as good at this as I thought I was, that's really important too. Yeah, yeah, and to feel like a a beginner at it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, as we've spoken about before, this sort of social conditioning, these sort of stereotypes have been Mm. millennia in the making. Mm. Uh, Gender stereotypes, for sure, have been millennia in the making. We've probably got the first generation of now retiring women who have worked. Yes. Professional women. Yeah. I mean, when you look at it in that context, yep. you know, the baby boomers are the first that are actually, um, you know, going to yes. be retiring as professional yeah. women. And interestingly, we did a little bit of research and uh, was hoping to do a bigger, bigger piece, but we weren't able to do it on leaders whose mothers didn't work Mm. and they turned out and it wasn't particularly scientific it was only 100 leaders we looked at but nevertheless it indicated let's use that word that they were statistically less likely to work Mm. well for a woman and statistically less likely to promote a woman Um, so there is no doubt that that should have made a huge difference but I have a hunch that there's something more insidious going on than that it's probably that you know interesting cocktail because not Mm. only are we you know victims of our own social conditioning because it's like what's going on out there that I need to navigate because you know people might not see me as a woman leader as a legitimate person in authority and what's going on in here yes what are the things that my own social conditioning are telling me about what good looks like as a leader and how I should behave absolutely and whether the same behaviors that I'm trying to look at are actually going to be valued or judged differently because I'm a female leader and and I think that's that's true and it's a really interesting one to touch on we talk a lot um, around something called benevolent bias mm. that we believe is actually damaging the careers of mm. women. Um, so there's the obvious stuff that we've been talking about for years, and I'm not belittling it, but I am saying we've known that stuff for years. Yeah. We're not really shifting that. Let's just look at this one, because this little baby goes deep, deep into hide. Um, you know, we talk about... Um, bias where I keep people out I don't like Mm -hmm. I talk about affinity bias where I bring people in that remind me me. and make Mm. me comfy but actually benevolent bias is a comes from a place of kindness Mm -hmm. it's basically where I am going to make a decision on your behalf without consulting you that will rip your career to shreds but you won't know I've even done it yeah and um, with the best possible intent oh with the best possible intent because I'm looking after you darling including we know women don't get the same level of feedback Yes. From their male yes. managers. Yeah, because I don't want to the hurt best you. possible intent. Yes. Yep. But, you know, we think about it, you know, we look at where that comes from. And if we look at where your unconscious bias has come from, mm. and we look specifically at that one, um, you know, most people have watched a Disney cartoon in their lifetime. Yeah. And if we talk to men about what has gone into your head, about what did Disney tell you about what women were going to be like, what girls were going to be like when they grew up to be women... And you get the princess, don't you? You yeah. get the, you know, beautiful hair and waist so small they can't possibly breathe, singing and yeah. sleeping at the same time and deliriously happy. But the big one is 
that got you programmed to think they needed saving. Mm. But the flip of that, and this is where most women don't like me saying it, but the truth is we got programmed with that too. You know, some of us are still thinking one day my prince will come. Yeah. So I think, and I accept that we've also got the the woman from Frozen, you know, the let it go character. Mm -hmm. And we've got Moana and I hear that. But actually what's really interesting is what's coming over the hill next because we have a generation of teenagers between 14 and 18 watching far more pornography than you know we ever got to see by reaching up to the top shelf. Yep. And I heard a, a statistic a couple of weeks ago that's quite shocking, and that is one of the, uh, the, the, the main search term between 14 and 18 is extreme. Now, they are not searching extreme gender balanced relationships. Um, are you sure, Angie? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, Fanny. Um, I'll have to have a go at that, actually. Extreme gender balanced relationships. And, and that is going to be coming at us next. Yes. So those underlying, deeply programmed assumptions about what men do, what women do, yeah. what our roles are in society aren't going away. Yeah, deeply ingrained. Deeply ingrained. And I have to say, you know, one of the things that we do when, in our work with clients is we call it. Yeah. We say it out loud. Mm-hmm. We say it out loud. We say all the stuff. Ar- and this is me. Yeah. And this is me. And this is how, you know, you're likely to be programmed. And um, and by the way, guys, you're busily inventing a world that's so perfect for you that you've got high levels of depression and we're seeing higher rates of male suicide mm-hmm. than, than we've seen in a long time. So you know, can we all just stop the madness and have a little look at what this needs to look like? Yeah. So they're much more robust conversations. Uh, you know, I think that's what we have got to do. Yeah overcome this because otherwise the response is dismissive mm-hmm. oh it's just political correctness absolutely defensive yeah get off my case yeah. you've got a problem with me yeah you know women's advancement for example has got to be therefore at the expense of mine yeah and really yes. interesting that yeah. sort of zero sum game and we know the data shows that inclusive cultures both men and women progress better and yes. are much more satisfied. Absolutely. So there is no zero-sum game. No. It helps everybody. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Ultimately, it does. But I think ultimately we've got to make more noise around the business outcome. I think mm. we're not doing that mm. enough. We have to make more noise around the deeper psychology, which includes yeah. the deep programming and why we do that stuff. Um, and I think it's got to be out there, out and proud. I think we have to have conversations about bias in every performance management meeting, after yeah. every mop-up of every interview, um, after every glib little comment um, that shouldn't have happened. All of that stuff I needs think to we, be called. We need to call it. We need to be yeah. braver. We need to be a lot more brave. And that's the challenge, I think, isn't it? Because certainly with the work I do with women leaders, that whole what's going on out there... Mm-hmm not to create a victim, this is just how things are, these are millennia in the making, this might help you better understand the landscape you're navigating. How do you do that with skill and good grace and with authenticity and integrity? And what's going on in here? What is the stuff that I have been socially conditioned around about what's appropriate, as you said before, for women to do? So I'm wondering, you know, given that sort of work, we're often... Uh, women are in this sort of double bind between their leadership role expectations, which are often male characteristics, and then their female role expect gender role expectations. This warm and strong piece that women I've seen really struggle to get it right. What kind of advice? You know, it's the same for, and, and we know when a man becomes angry, for example, 
it, it's it's power enhancing mm-hmm. for a man. Mm-hmm. It's quite the opposite for a woman in leadership. So sometimes women will be trying to get a role model to see that occasionally getting angry has a good effect. We'll use that and find actually it that the response is the opposite. She is seen as hostile, less competent and less likable. So what's your sense for how women can navigate these unconscious biases in themselves and in the organisation around them, none of which has been done to them on purpose? It's, it, for me, it is all about inner authenticity and inner strength. I don't buy into the let's send women on training courses to tell them how to pretend to mm. act in any way whatsoever. It does not work. Um, and it just feeds the machine. It absolutely feeds the confusion machine as well. Who am I? Why do I even belong here? Absolutely. And and even if they put it off, it then feeds the machine that is keeping the the other women out. So if I go to work and I pretend to be something I'm not, Mm. big and strong, but actually, you know, we are doing that to men too. The, the, the quiet introvert in the corner mm-hmm. still doesn't get heard, still yeah. doesn't get it's still seen. Still not seen as leadership material. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I actually think it's the same. It is the same thing. You know, I, I want to scream sometimes when we say, oh, you know, women don't apply for jobs unless there's a list that, that they can tick every box on. Yeah, them and introvert men, mm. right? So it's, it is the same thing. It's still exclusion, whatever it looks like. So for me, it is being strong and true to who you are and seeking an environment that will have you. Mm. But I do think it is also being confident in your own skills and abilities. And I think that is something we are not necessarily, you know, we're all prone to the imposter syndrome. Mm. um, And it's not necessarily something we do well as anybody. I don't think that is specifically for women. I think men are crushed inside as well and don't know who the hell they are. I don't think it is specific to gender. Mm. You know, I really, really don't. But I do take on board what, what you say around that you know, if I, if I explode with anger, which, by the way, I don't think anybody with the title of leader should be exploding with anger anywhere. But if I explode with anger, then suddenly I'm the emotional wreck yes. that I can't be relied on. It gets labelled in a different Absolutely. way. And Absolutely. And it makes people anxious. Yes. Yeah. And again, yeah. that social conditioning. Yes. yes. It's, uh, it's a freak out with, yeah. you know, angry women. Are Completely. To, uh, whereas an angry man, it's the same, you know, with confidence. So, we, you know, the, the, the kind of mantra about women aren't as confident, but sometimes confidence looks different and needs to look different. Yes. Because we know that self-confident men are promoted faster. Self-confident women are only promoted fast if they can counterbalance that with being exceptionally warm. So they've got to bring some other social conditioning around their gender role into play. And that can be challenging. Yes. And I'm not sure that actually self-confident men are genuinely self-confident men. I think I'd reframe that. I think I'd say men who... Men who pretend to be self-confident are promoted. And behaviourally... Self-confidence is rewarded with men. Yes. Behaviorally, self-confidence yes. is only rewarded with women if they yes. can buffer it yes. with exceptional if we're lovely warmth. and kind yeah. too. But wouldn't it be brilliant if we were all hugely self-confident and, and hugely warm? And hugely warm. Exactly. You know, I, I, and that's the opportunity for women in terms of their development is yeah, yeah this navigating this world. How yes. do I do this with authenticity? Yes. Yeah. I'm not going to learn to be a man because actually it doesn't work. No. Because everyone knows you're not. Yeah. So it'll just look weird. Yeah. And I'll feel ghastly and you know, I 
you know, after five years, I'll be so damned exhausted and sick of myself and everyone else, I'll just jump off and do yeah, something else anyway. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. But I do think, I mean, one of the things that, that, that I say an awful lot is until we have got, to get genuine gender balance, we have got to be giving the men permission to be who they really are as well. Exactly. And I do not believe that they are this very strong, macho, angry self-confident breed Mm. at all i think there are an awful lot of men dying inside but until we can give them permission to do that as well as the women we are not going to win this exactly and it's not just even permission but they need to take the take it as well yes you know it's just all the data just showing how many men would prefer for their partners to be the primary breadwinner Mm. and for them to be the primary carer but, you know, I was talking to um, a client's partner the other day who said, oh, but come on, get real. This is someone in their early 30s, both big professional careers. He said, you know, I would love to be the stay-at-home dad, but the cost to my career oh, of asking for flexible working huge. is much greater than huge. Sarah's. Yes. And he would have loved to have done it, and she would have loved to have been yes. actually the primary breadwinner. Yes. So, you know, that social conditioning goes very deep, and this was a professional, well-educated couple in their early 30s, yeah. working, dare I say it, for one of the top 10 companies. Yes. You know, who's probably gone through all of this, but yeah. he still didn't feel when they were negotiating what their life was going to look like with a child, that he should ask for yeah. flexible working. Absolutely. And actually, from a career point of view, he was probably done yeah. right. Yeah, he was because, absolutely yeah. right. Again, you know, the, and again, the amount of money that has been invested in flexible working processes, in putting the laws and the rules and the policies in, but we still haven't changed what's at the back of it. What's that saying? That where the moors are few, the law, where the moors are many, the laws are few, and where the laws are few, the moors are many. You know, where we haven't got the rules, but we actually allow conversations to happen and change to occur, we don't need the rules. But we need the rules until managers have got the more I would because love, you know yeah. I think you've still got managers I we still talk about it like well, it's an accommodation to women with children yes it's not Absolutely. a business-based issue and you know why would a man want to come and ask for flexible working exactly What's the matter exactly with them? why I've even heard What's yeah. the matter with them yeah yeah. yeah, so it's, you know, if there's that whole element, isn't there, around the compliance piece, when do you get people just to change their behaviour and then it becomes their own autopilot, depending on people who are riddled with social conditioning yes. to actually behave in ways that are contrary to what they believe yes, or think. Absolutely. They'll just go into autopilot. Yes, which is why we need the belief system change so we need the rhetoric we need the storytelling we need the conversations we need things like the videos we need to watch those emotionally charged little snippets we need the nudges we need it to be consistently there but we then need the policies so the laws Mm. the legislation written in and we need to be holding people's feet to the fire and making them accountable but not just for going and hiring five more women if that was going to work accountable for having great conversations business-based problem-solving conversations absolutely absolutely and on that note angie what have you seen in terms of really kind of leading edge accountability practices so you've talked about um that sort of gestalt of being able to go in and help people really understand it, 
viscerally feel yeah. it, then have behavioral change around it, bake it into all of your processes from hiring to promoting to when you're doing your little nine box model. Yeah. You know, are we really, you know, to the asides, the conversations, who's in the room, who got in the room, who's out of the room, mentoring systems, all of that. What about the accountability piece? What's measured and what works? At the moment, very little is measured apart from the diver. Here we go again with the blue water, the diversity numbers. Yeah. We are now seeing more organisations measure inclusion and measure it by individual manager. So looking for what we would call inclusion indicators in their um, EE surveys, for example, and cutting that data. But what we are seeing is a huge take-up where we are putting in a measurement tool that measures that activity in action. Because again, what we are saying is, make no mistake, this is not just another little diversity intervention that's mm -hmm. going to go away. You're going to be held to account for it. And we're going to be involving you by having a conversation with your teams. Now that, that straight away puts them in a position where even if they are not buying into the whole thing, they're now starting this other ecosystem of an expectation that is self-managed. So it's not their boss telling them to do yeah. it. They're, they've now gone to it's their team. It's now. Absolutely, they've now gone to their team and they've gone, okay, well, we're just gonna have a conversation about our business case, for example, mm -hmm. for creating inclusion. So we will give them all the kit they will need to do that. But you think about what happens once they've done it. They've done that with 12 people, let's say, at a, at a team meeting. Suddenly, that's out there. When they then choose to behave in a way that isn't inclusive, in yeah. a way that isn't supporting that, they're going to get challenged by one of those team mm. members, beyond a shadow of a doubt. So we're absolutely, and then at the end of the day, we're cutting that data to see who's done what and who hasn't, okay. and so who's followed very it up. clear oh, yeah. group expectations about behaviours totally. and making it expected. Yes. Uh, not just okay, yes. but expected yes. for people to be calling that. Yes, yeah. you will do it. You will have these conversations. You will tell these stories. You will watch these videos. And I think what's interesting is what we used to call embedding um, mm. is, is actually now the very thing that mobilizes the learning. So that is the thing of culture change. That is the stuff of making That'll the difference. That'll rewire. Yes, mm. yeah. But it won't just rewire the individual brain, because it is a constant reminder, but it will actually rewire the organisation. Mm. The ecosystem. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And get constantly reinforced. Yes, yeah. all the time. And of course, you know, we know that if you go into an organisation that feels inclusive, it's a huge asset. So I'm still sort of perplexed because the data is quite compelling and very dense, there's lots of it, to show that women and men re stay longer, they work harder, they're more productive. Yep. Yeah, we don't They're do attracted, it. they're retained. Yeah, what's the challenge there? I think the challenge is going back to what I said at the beginning though, the data is saying that around inclusion, mm. don't forget, and what we are bus busily doing is putting those two words together yeah. and trying to treat them like they're the same. And I am certainly where we're seeing breakthrough. We are working with organisations where we've separated those two things. Mm. So we are very clear. Diversity is the stuff we can count. It is critically important. We The diversity initiatives like hiring people from different races or different genders or from the LGBTQI community, whatever, all of that is important and you carry on doing it. But if you don't raise your game in terms of inclusion, you can bring the most diverse group of people to the table mm. you like. 
But the tissue rejection will the be The tissue massive, rejection, yeah. the toxicity. They so the inclusion piece from your perspective critical. is managing, on the, managing yes. more and working on the system. Yes. And it's not, and again, we, you know, we've had a bit of pushback on that in terms of is, is inclusion giving everyone a way out? And my answer to that is no, it's not. We're keeping up the requirement. The foot's still on the gas in terms of the, the yeah. diversity. But what we are saying is let us look at what we haven't achieved in terms of diversity without inclusion. Let's look at the numbers that we haven't moved forward. Or if we have moved them forward, they haven't gone fast enough. Not in terms of a classic culture change. Mm. So something is stopping it. And the psychology of that inclusion, well, our, our definition of inclusion, creating an environment where everyone who has the capability to excel can excel. Mm -hmm. And that's everyone. It doesn't matter what school you've gone to. It doesn't yeah. matter. And it doesn't matter if you are a woman that wants to get angry. Mm. It doesn't matter if you are a very quiet introvert chap. You still have the same crack at the whip. And actually, it is the leaders that have to look and think, what have I done to create the environment that that individual can excel in? And that gets back to our normal challenge yes. is leadership capability in yes. the organisation. So yes. incredibly important. So what advice would you have for the women leaders who are listening to this about what they could do as leaders to better shape an ecosystem for an inclusive environment, an I, inclusive ecosystem? Yeah, well, I would say to you, number one, it is keep your conversation to the inclusion conversation until you have an inclusive environment. Because when we change that conversation to the diversity conversation before we have an environment that is inclusive, we're doing the same thing we've been doing for the last 20, 30 years and moving forward very slowly. Yeah. I really think the power is in the conversation around inclusion. Um, and I think bringing together groups of people to talk about that, bringing pe groups of people together to storytell around it, seeing it from absolutely every perspective, that's the important part. So I would say that's what they need to do to affect the ecosystem at every level. Yeah. Doing what we've always done isn't mm. actually, I don't think, moving the dial in the way that it should yeah. be. It's glacial. Absolutely. Mm. So I think that's that's number one. I think number two is very much that piece around authenticity and absolutely being themselves um it, it isn't it shouldn't be necessarily about dress this way behave this way say these words if i had to give young female leaders advice it would be get yourself on a strategic leadership course learn some damn good strategic tools practice them at home in the mirror yeah. until yeah. you are confident talking about yeah. them and go out there and actually get to where you're going to get to on your intellectual merits on your knowledge and on your capability, it shouldn't have to be about how you behave. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess, I yeah, that, that's really the advice I would it. give. Yeah. Rehearse, rehearse it, be it confident you know the it. impact you're making. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But rehearse the knowledge. I think that's, that's, that's the other thing. I mean, we run women's development programs. Mm. And I would say the single most powerful women's development program that we run, and it's been true for the last 20 years, is nothing to do with being a woman. It is everything to do with strategic and business acumen. Yes. And it is literally, here are five strategic tools, let's show you how to play with them. Yeah. And it is incredible when we use the word self-confidence, the amount of self-confidence that those women have when they From their technical program. confidence. From their yeah. technical com competence. And yeah. actually, I can also tell you, probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't say this, I mean, clients might be listening, but I can also tell you <laughs> that the vast majority of them said, we walked in here and we already knew everything that you've just told us. Exactly. But actually, given a safe space to play, yeah. 
because they safe have space to learn the belief yeah mm. they have the belief that actually this that, that strategy is some mystical mm-hmm. art that men learn yeah. behind closed doors and that they'd never master absolutely it was a mystery yes mm. yes and it's just not true and yep. in, in fact actual fact i always say to them well we teach the same skills and business acumen to you that we teach pre-board mm. um and that we also do as a CSR to senior school people of 15, yeah. 16 years old. Because it's a toolkit. Because it's a toolkit. Just get kit. confident and comfortable really? with it. Yes, it's not that difficult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Angie, thanks so much. It's oh, been such been a, a pleasure, pleasure talking to you. Pleasure thanks so much for coming too, in. Penny. My pleasure. Thank thanks, you. Angie. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes. And stay in touch penny at pennydevolt.com. Bye for now.